colors, a beautiful way for our creator's creativity to be displayed. Whether that be how colors come together as spring looms, the lush greens and flowers bloom engaging in relations like a bride and groom. Or how autumn leaves us in awe as if its colors were making music the way they harmonize relentlessly, drawing attention to themselves with every brisk breeze. It never ceases to amaze me that after a storm, to see a streak of colors formed in the sky representing a promise, I promise that colors do and mean much more than we give credit for, including God's remarkable design for and through mankind. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, right? Or was this just a figment of our imagination that wasn't clear in view? To see pigment seep deep and breach the depths of our hearts that it doesn't matter about our skin's hue. We were all fearfully and wonderfully made and it does not diminish or degrade anyone though they may be of a different shade. Church, let us not paint pale pictures of division that is on display for our culture to see. But let us be woven together like a beautiful tapestry of diversity as God intended it to be. Let us be one like the three living in community, looking for opportunities to impart unity. And may our colors compose a song that is orchestrated with his greatness, in which our melanin sings melodies and us blending becomes the remedy for all to see his heavenly glory. Glory be to the almighty king who died for every tongue, nation, and tribe. With that, who are we to be a people who constantly integrate rooms but live segregated lives, lies, Christ did not die alone for those of us with a darker skin tone. And we were not created in his image and whiteness. It was his image and likeness. We have to fight this, but how? But how? But how beautiful is our tainted paint, and it is only by God's grace that we have not yet been floored. We don't want to admit that we've been in this position before, but we only do what we lack because we, I can give you so much more. Just like pointing out that somebody's poor doesn't automatically make you rich. And in the same sense, just because I'm pointing out what is broken doesn't automatically make me fixed. We exist to tell how God's grace set us free and how he is forming a family from all people for all eternity. Colors. Colors. A beautiful way for our creator's creativity to be displayed. Amen. So uh, as we planned this day and thought about how we would, how we would kind of walk through it, um, many of you guys know it, Xavier and Lauren, they, they were at church here before, and, and, uh, and, and then they moved to Houston. But because of our partnership, our brotherhood, we, I couldn't imagine doing this without them. And so I reached out to them as, as we talked about this, and they were gracious enough to come. And, and so uh, Xavier and I, as we talked about it, we both confessed our apprehension a little bit. Uh, it's a touchy subject, but uh, he said, I've got this spoken word that I've been planning on writing. I haven't written. Uh, this would be a great reason to go ahead and finish it. And, and, and so I said, well, it'd be a great reason for me to stand next to you and, and be uh, one in this. And so, because we're both stepping into this this way. So as you wrote that, what was the motive to push past, to be a part of this, to push past this, to write this, this spoken word? What's your motive there? I guess my, my motive was... Um that I was just so discouraged by seeing how the church responded to everything that was going on. 
So I just wanted to encourage the church to look different from the outside world so that we can see actual change come about. So, so as we walk away from this, not everybody is going to walk away with all the rhymes and the, and the poetic, they'll sense that poetry, but, but what's the message? Like, what do we walk away with? When we walk out of the doors, we wake up tomorrow morning into a, uh, a city that's really vastly homogenized, you know, it's vastly white. What's the message you want us to walk away with? Um, with the thesis statement of the piece, um, that I say, uh, church, let us not be a, uh, what did I say? You're the one that wrote <laughs> church, it. Church, let us not be a uh, pale picture of division um, that is on display for our uh, culture to see, but let us be woven together like a beautiful tapestry of diversity as God intended it to be. Yeah. And that's what he's working for. In the gospel, that's what Christ is working for. And so thank you very much for coming and being a part of this. I appreciate you and love you, man. I love you. All right. So this uh, obviously is a, a sensitive issue. There's a lot, of, a lot of landmines we could step on, a lot of different ways that this could be received today. And, and so we do step in with some level of humility and, and apprehension, not, not wanting to be offensive necessarily unless we need to call, to call ourselves to repentance, but, but certainly want to be fruitful in it. And so I'm just going to be up front. Uh, as, as much as he talked about his apprehension, um, I'm a white guy. <laughs> that uh, I think that's obvious. Obviously, you're, you're looking at me. Thank you for that. Um, and I've, I've struggled for two years, really, how to step in and, and just begin to engage this. I did this the last service, too. I don't understand. There's heavy emotion with with this. There is uh, deep concern. Um, I don't necessarily know why I'm feeling that in this moment, but but I want you to know that I I don't approach this lightly. Uh, What we're we're seeking to do in in, in the day today is not just to come and and just rake ourselves over the coals, but really... In, in the two years that I've been working through this and trying to figure it out in my own heart, God has, I believe, prepared us for this day that we could, that we could mark this as a starting place, a starting point. And so um, I think it's important that we do. And so as we do, let me just, let me just encourage us to stop again and, and pray. Because there's a reality that this is an issue that really grabs at the core of each and every person in the room and, and I don't want to step into this. I don't want to, I don't want to speak to you. Uh, I, I don't want you to, to consider these words of Xavier from a position of um, uh, any other position than one that has been drenched in prayer at the foot of the cross. Because the reality is, is that's the only... <laughs> That is the only hope we have. So let's pray. Well, Father, I uh, come humbly, recognizing that I don't have all of the answers. I don't have uh, maybe all of the words, all of the perspectives, all of the ability. I come dependent and needy. And I ask God that you help us to see each of us, each of us, ourselves there. 
each of ourselves at this place in need of a Savior, in, place of, in, in a place of brokenness and uh, uh, division and hurt and pain and, and, and a loss. I pray, Father, for, for moments today, not of, not of guilt and shame, but conviction. I would plead with you that your spirit would meet us and lead us into truth. I plead with you, Father, that in those moments, in those moments where we feel the conviction that you wouldn't leave us there to, to cry out, oh, woe is me, and to wallow in mud and, 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 and filth and mire, but that you would lift our, lift our faces to see you, to behold the beauty of what you have done for us, to be mesmerized by your glory, to be shaped by your gospel, the power that's intrinsically woven into us by your grace. And we wouldn't walk out of here resistant to what you would do in us. But that we walk in confidence and certainty of a God who has not just loved one people, not just one color, but has sent his son to redeem a people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. I ask these things in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. So why would we even think to deal with this? Why would we even start in this place? And the reality is this, is that it matters to our Father in heaven. It matters to him. It matters so, so much to him that this is the point in which, in which his work in the world will culminate. When John, in the book of Revelation, writes, he sees a sea of people. It's not just one color, it's not just, it's not just one from one ethnicity, it's not just from one culture, but it's representative of all people that have ever lived. He sees a sea of people gathered around the throne of Christ singing praises to the king. This is what he's working towards. It's so important to him that he suffered that one day it might happen. We do this today because it matters to him. We do this today because if we don't, if the church doesn't, there is no other voice that possibly can. We are the ones that have been given the ability to step in and speak truth with grace in the face of great division. In fact, the thesis, my thesis statement for today and I just guarantee you that it's not going to be nearly as poetic, not nearly as rhythmic as my brother, but it's married together with his. Because of the gospel, there is no room in the church for division. Only reconciled diversity that's united through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the point at which the gospel makes itself known in the world. It wasn't to save an individual, but to save many people to become 
one. And, and here's the reality. Regardless of putting a black man next to a white man on a stage, regardless of the ability to live in the same neighborhoods, regardless of the ability to walk into a place of employment with, with multiple cultures and multiple ethnicities represented, that doesn't, that doesn't speak to anything but the diversity that comes outside of the gospel. You see, what we are, what we are called to be about, what we've been empowered for, the message that God has given us, doesn't just bring diversity, it brings reconciliation, it brings unity, it brings oneness. We cannot settle to be a church that's ethnically diverse, although we have work to do there. We must be a people of God who have been reconciled to him and to each other. Standing as one, representing today in this present moment what is to come when our king returns. That's why we're doing it today. That's, that's what we're after. That's the purpose, that we might glorify God with our lives, that we might glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the work that he came to do, that we might bear witness to the world around us because the world needs to see us getting this right. Because again, if we don't, no one else is possibly capable. If the church doesn't do this, no one else can. They can achieve something. But they cannot achieve the reconciliation that comes through Christ. See, our world, our nation, our state... Specifically, our city, the neighbors that we live next door to, the, the neighbors that we, that, that we walk in life next to, they need to see this. They need to see us getting this right. Because we're the ones with the gospel. We're the ones that have been called to set the example. We're the ones that have been made able to paint the picture that goes beyond that diversity to oneness. What we aren't doing today, what we aren't doing today is about, we're not shaming anyone because of the color of their skin or the ethnicity that they have been raised in or the culture that they uh, enjoy. This is not about white shaming or black shaming. It's not about white pumping up or black pumping up. We are not here to uh, uh, affirm or deny someone based simply on their race. I do pray that in the midst of this that, that you would find no condemnation in Christ, that you would recognize your identity there first and you would not, that, that, that you would not be covered with shame and condemnation. But I do pray that if you're actively racist in your heart and thought that you would be convicted of your sin, that you might walk in repentance. There is no room in the church for this kind of division. We are not picking one people or one group over another. We do not have to stick and live in this binary perspective just because we will speak to and highlight the racial division that exists between white people and black people because we are focusing heavily on this racial division doesn't mean that we're suddenly opposed to the police officers that, that, that walk a beat every day. Just because we might say black lives matter doesn't mean that blue lives don't. In fact, I would say 
I would say this, that as we affirm the life of those who have been oppressed, we lift everyone. Today is not about picking one side or the other. It's about seeing how the gospel fixes the problem we have created. Today, today is not a day that we're going to get everything fixed. In fact, if you walked in here thinking that, oh man, I'm going to have this magic pill that's suddenly going to make everything better, well, you're, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Or, or sadly, you're going to be disappointed. Today is a day that we can put a mark on the calendar of our lives that every day from here out, we live for the purpose for which God left us here. Living in gospel repentance, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel that these many peoples might in Christ be united as one. For the glory of God, for the good of his people and the advancement of his gospel message. So today, as we finish this out, as we walk the rest of the way through this, I'm going to seek to do three things. I'm going to demonstrate to you that racism is a reality. It is still an issue in our world. We're going to demonstrate that beyond the reality of racism, that there is a source to the problem, that if we can dig to the root of this issue, if we can get past the the, the, the surface level problems and get to the root of the issue, we can actually see something happen in us. And then I'm going I'm to show you through the scripture the solution that God has given us. Again, all the long praying, pleading with him that he would work today. Because no matter how poetic and how artistic my brother Xavier is, no matter how, uh, how, how loud I might shout or how much I might be emotional, our words can fall on an eardrum. It's going to take the spirit to move to your heart. So I'm pleading with him that that's what would happen today. So let's get going. Racism is a reality the funny thing is to me is that the ironic thing, I guess, is that we even have to make this point. But it's a reality. It's a, it's a need. Even, even I, just two years ago, as, as all of these things started with the, with the videos being, being shown of, of black men being shot unarmed in the, in the street and, and, and trying to wrestle with this and understand it. There was a part of me that's like, there's a piece of me that says... Oh, Aren't we just past this? Like, aren't we beyond it? Aren't we able to just move on? Is this really still a problem? So as I stepped in and started to try and understand it and started to try and figure this out in my own heart, recognizing that that was a gospel issue early on, I'm thankful for God, to God for that. I realized that even as I spoke about it, I was speaking a different language. Speaking in different terms. I was using one term to mean something that wasn't being understood in that way. And so today, before we can even step in and, 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 and really see it as a reality, we've got to even define it. And so for the sake of time, I won't share with you the two resources I brought. I'm in an Oxford English Dictionary just so that you can know where I'm coming from as I speak of racism. 
I, I, I speak of it from this perspective of prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Simply because I'm white, I'm better. I deserve more. The belief that all members of each race possess characteristic abilities or qualities specific to that race. White men can't jump. But black men can. Is that not? I mean, we make light of it. There's a movie about it. That can't be racist, can it? But it is. Qualities specific to that race, especially so as to distinguish it as inferior or superior to another race. The reality is if I, if I shine in my whiteness and I proclaim in my whiteness that I am worth more, then I intrinsically, I have no choice but to determine that every other race must be less. And we see this everywhere. We see, we see it all over the place. And sometimes we see it in points and places of ignorance that we don't even realize exist within us. Went to Nicaragua as a mission trip. When I did it like seven years in a row. And, and on the first trip, I stepped off the bus and I had this attitude. And it, it was genuine. It was heartfelt. It was sincere. I'm coming to bring the gospel. I so desperately longed to share the gospel with these people. Because I saw them as so needy. I hadn't met them. I didn't know anything about them other than they needed the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. That's not bad, is it? But I stepped off the bus into a group of people that had, had houses built for them the year before and who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and they had spent months worth of wages to receive us and throw a party because we were there. Like, I thought they were missing out, that they were joyless, that they had no hope, that they had no chance, that they were completely just, just uh, 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 without any opportunity in the world. And I, and I step into this place, and I'm like, humbled. I'm not the great white hope I thought I was. I didn't have all the answers for these people. In fact, God was there long before me. There was a woman there who, just by the way, had never lifted a saw, never cut a board, never done a lick of construction in her life. It was a good Christian woman, a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, who wouldn't allow a man who did construction daily for pennies to cut the boards because he couldn't do it as good as a white person from America. She didn't even get it. She didn't grasp it. She didn't understand how racist that perspective was. The great white hope come to save these people. I'm thankful that God humbled me. I grew up in Louisiana, and, and uh, before that was born in Arkansas, and I remember one of the distinct things that my mother and father did before we moved down there was let us know, and it's ironic when you think about it, going from Arkansas to Louisiana. It doesn't seem like there'd be a whole lot of difference, but, but I remember distinctly them having a conversation with us that there would be a much more blatant racism in Louisiana than there was in Arkansas, and that we weren't going to be like that. Like we weren't going to adopt that, that, that narrative or that attitude of the culture. 
We weren't going to consider black people as less. We had always perceived black people as people just like we were, and we were not going to consider them differently just because we moved our our, our place of residence. And and we got there, and there was. There was a much higher population of black people in Louisiana where we grew up, where I grew up right outside of Baton Rouge. And in that city... In that city, there was, there was a, a park that we would go to periodically, and, and on the way there, we would pass a building off the left-hand side of the road. I can still remember it just as clear as if I had just seen it yesterday. And it was a place where the KKK met. And every now and then, we would see and pass by and there'd be a fire. There'd be people out there even wearing their garb. My best friend, well, one of my best friends, a couple of guys that I remember really closely. There's one particular kid, his name was Butch. He was black and I was white. Still white, you get that. Everything was great so long as there was no fights going on in the school. It was pretty evenly distributed. I can remember just just feeling like that there just feeling like there wasn't a black minority, it was just black and white people. Everything was great so long as the 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 facade of Unity was not being disturbed, but as soon as a black guy and a white guy would get in a fight, the courtyard would erupt in division. And because my friend was black and I was white, we were expected no longer to care for one another or to think of one another as friends, but we were to become enemies. Because before we were friends, we were united in blackness and united with whiteness. And it struck me that I grew up that way, and we moved to, this, to, to Ozark, Missouri, and, and, and it struck me. We moved when I was in 10th grade. It struck me so drastically when I first went to school. The very first day I went to school, I found out there's no white people in Ozark. I didn't even, even as a white person, I didn't know what to do with that. Even as a white person, I was like, this is so strange. There might have been, there, not might have been, there was a family that had adopted a child who was black, but, but that little boy was in elementary school. But so far as I know, he was the only one in all of Ozark. And I thought this was so strange. And I was talking one day to a woman. I used to cut her grass. And by all accounts, she would be this, this sweet little old lady that like everybody thinks of their grandma, you know? I mean, it's like super nice, just always seemed generous and thoughtful and considerate. I was cutting her grass, and I finished. It was, and, and as usual, I'd sit down on the porch. She'd bring me a glass of water, and we'd sit there and talk, and she would just reminisce. And one day, I was so struck by the fact that there wasn't black people in Ozark. I, I was like, why, why is that? She's like, that's not strange. They're not here because we ran them off. And if they move into town, we'll run them off again. That's 25 years ago. That's not that long ago. Does racism not exist? Is it not a reality still today? It absolutely is. More more recent 
Matt and his wife Amy and me and my wife Amy, we went to Chicago a couple of years back. We went to just relax, have fun in the city and get away for for a few days. And we got there and our first night in town, we walked to uh, the south side of Chicago. We were already on the south side of Chicago in our hotel, but we walked further to the south side of Chicago looking for, for dinner. Everything was closed up. We didn't have any idea why everything closed at 7. Had no clue. We're just a bunch of white people ignorant to, the, to the, what was going on. We knew that we were, it was obvious we were the only white people there. And people were looking at us pretty strange. But we didn't know to the next day just how desperately, what a big mistake we'd made. And how much risk we were in. We met up with this pastor friend of mine that, that, had, uh, that I had met a few months before, and, and he was going to show us around Chicago, and, and he began to talk to us, and we told him we'd been on the south side. He was blown. He was shocked. He's like, you don't know what you were. You, you're lucky you didn't get shot. Not because you were doing, doing anything wrong. Not because you were the wrong people in the wrong place, because you were the wrong color. Tell me racism doesn't exist. I can show you story after story after story, and not just my own, because the reality is for many of us as white people in this world, we live in ignorance. But talk to my brother Xavier. He'll be here tonight. Talk to the friends you have that have felt the weight of it. It is real. But because of the gospel, there is no room for that. No room for that division among the people of God. Only the reconciled diversity that's unified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we see the reality of it. It is the reality in the world in which we live. But by God's grace, we move beyond this reality, this awareness. And instead of having to be stuck in frustration because we're aware with no answer, we are made aware and we're able to see the source and then we're able to see the solution. So let's go to the source of racism. It is our sin against God. It is not because the system is broken first. It is not because people are just, are, are, are just ignorant or stupid. It's because people are sinful. Systems are broken because they're made up of sinful people. Not because they've been designed with that in mind. Not first and foremost. Although there are some that have. But there will never be a system of equality outside the gospel. The source of racism is our sin against God. Let me just demonstrate that to you from the scripture. We're going to do something different. I'm not going to preach on one passage. We're going to be walking all the way through the Bible today. So, so I'm all, every verse that I'm going to share, most of the verses that I'm going to share are on the screen behind me. But I would encourage you, go to find me on Facebook. Go to the YouVersion Live event. Find me on Twitter, whatever. Find that link that gets you to those notes. All of these passages are there. And then later today, there will be a... a, a list of resources that can, you can begin to read through, listen to, and, and consider as you do this work. We begin in Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells the story of God creating. He creates everything, and it's in harmony. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. God's built this, built this amazing creation that's going to sustain the life of this man and woman and all of their, all of their uh, offspring, and it's going to be to his glory. And he gives commands, and he says, hey, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You can't eat this one tree. 
If you do, you're going to die. The serpent comes in in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes in, tempts the woman. She eats the fruit that God commanded her not to. She turns and gives the fruit to Adam who was with her. And he eats also. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 7, we see the immediate result of that sin, of that rebellion against God. Then the eyes of both were opened. Not one or the other, but both. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We deal with this passage quite a bit because of division. We see it happen between the man and the woman. Immediately, the sin against God, the rebellion against God resulted in division between a man and his wife. It drove them apart. They were naked and without shame at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And then immediately upon rebelling against God, they're covering up, they're hiding from one another. They are very aware of nakedness and they feel shame and they have a reason suddenly to hide. But it doesn't end there. Man, I wish it did. You see, God comes down and, and steps into the garden and they hear him in the garden and they're like, oh, we've got to hide. I don't, I don't know how to picture that exactly. I've always kind of pictured it behind, like they're hiding behind this big elephant ear or something like that. You know, they've, they've covered up with leaves and they're trying to hide from God behind a leaf. Maybe it's a big rock. I, I don't know, but they're hiding from God, the God who created them. They're hiding from him. And when they walk through this process and God brings them to a place where they confess their sin, he brings the curse. He brings judgment. He, he brings judgment. He curses the serpent. He curses the woman. He curses the man. He even curses the ground on which the man was going to work. Like the earth suffers because of our sin. But specifically as he speaks to the woman in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. If you've ever had a child, you don't have to be told that's true. Your desire, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now you could read that and think, oh, that means that I'm going to desire and love and, 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 and hope for and wish the best on my husband. What we miss in this English translation is that the word that's used is, is, is very rarely used in the Old Testament. But immediately in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to turn there in just a second. In Genesis chapter 4, it speaks of the same way that sin desired Cain. It desired his destruction. It desired to rule him. The idea that's demonstrated here in the curse that God places on man and woman as a result of their rebellion against him is that there would be always be marital strife, marital difficulty. And if you have ever been married, if you are married, you know it's not easy. Because we are sinful people, married to sinful people. That division, that rebellion against God, that, that rebellion against God is the result it results in division between man. At the heart of racism is our separation from an active rebellion against the sovereign God. We see it explicitly in Genesis chapter 3. We see it again in Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden the, the garden of Eden. The, the vision, the separation is, is tangibly felt. They're not allowed back into the garden of Eden. They go, they, they have marital relations, and they, they begin to have children. And, and two of their sons, Cain and Abel, seek after God. They bring, 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 bring uh, offerings to God, and, and Cain's is, dis, is rejected, and Abel's is received, and Cain is jealous. 
It says in verses 6 through 8, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Listen, its desire is for you. It's the same phrase, the same terminology that's used as the woman will desire her husband, but yet be ruled over. He says, and if you do well, sin, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God commands Cain to self-control, to, to, to control the desires within him, to control the, the, the thoughts and the temptations. And when he's facing the difficulties, he is supposed to take control of those desires and that anger and that hatred towards another person. And he's to take it under control and squash it. It's at the door. It's seeking to destroy you. It's seeking to consume you. And Cain is unable. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And you might think, well, that's brothers. That's got nothing to do with this, right? I mean, this is talking about, we're talking about racism today. But yet there's many people that demonstrate that this is the first act of racism. Jarvis William, he's a, uh, an author and pastor. He contends that Cain's action was a racist action. The Myth of the Myth of Racism is an article he wrote for the Reformed African American Network on their blog. You can go out and find them on the internet, raan.com uh, or .org. I can't remember which, but you, you can find them. He writes this, If humanity was a race-kind group class of people prior to the time when, pe- when certain groups began to classify other groups based on perceived or shared biological features, then when one human being murders another human being, the, murder commits, the murderer commits an act of racism. Because we were becoming the people that would divide in, uh, 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 as opposed to d- divide in race, kind, group, and class. Because we were becoming that, that was intrinsically already in us because of our sin. And so even Cain, who's killing his brother, who at this point are not different colors, but they are different people with different desires and different, different uh, pursuits and different uh, uh, a, 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 a division. A division that had been, a wedge that had been driven between them. One jealous of the other's benefits and the one jealous of the other's position. But even in this moment, his point is that even in this moment, Cain was being racist against Abel. You see, sin not only separates us from God, it sets us against God. It makes us enemies with God. And it separates us from one another and makes us enemies against each other such that we are harmful to each other rather than beneficial. We are hurtful rather than helpful in our flesh apart from Christ. This is the truth that reigns in every man's heart. The story continues. The heart of the man is evil. In fact, in Genesis 6, God shows us that he is grieved by man, that he is grieved that he, put, that, that he created man, that the thoughts and intents of the heart were only evil all the time. Like that, I, I mean, he's, he, he's showing us that, that every ounce of them, their mind, their heart, their doing, their, their knowing, their being, their doing, their head, their heart, their hands, everything about them was given to evil. So God pushes reset. He graces one family with the opportunity for life and he wipes the rest off the face of the earth with a flood. But then, 
in the midst of this, as, as Noah and his family come off of the great, or off of the ark, as Noah and his family step out onto dry ground and God engages with them again, he enters into covenant with them and he says, go, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. The, the same language that came from the creation is now their command. It's now their commission, go, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. He gives them all of creation to enjoy as food. And he does something very specific and very special in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Why would he differentiate? Why would he give an animal to die for my use? Why would he not care as much? Why would he be willing to say that if a man is killed, I'm going to demand a recompense. I'm going to demand an accounting for that blood. For God made man in his own image. You see, the reality is that the heart of our racism is our sin against God, our rebellion against God. But at the heart of our racism is a denial of God's image that resides in each of us. When we seek to be superior or stand in, 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 in a place of, of privilege without considering those around us as equals, we're denying that they are created in the image of the one who created us. And that's exactly what Cain did when he killed Abel. He denied the image of the creator. And for anyone, even animals, you can read about it. Genesis chapter 9, you go back, I think it's verse 5, you can go back and read it. Even animals would be demanded an account if they were to shed human blood because we are created in his image. And we don't even have to go so far. We don't even have to go so far as to do something as horrendous as murder. Proverbs 14.31, these are not on the screen. You can write them down. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. That we could ever stand in a place to think that we have the, or have the audacity to think that we could oppress one person over another is an insult to the image of God. It's an insult to the God who created us. Proverbs 17.5, whoever mocks, that means to insult, to ridicule, have callous indifference towards the difficulties a person faces. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. We, we, can't even, we can't even turn a blind eye. We can't even walk away as if it doesn't matter. Because it's an insult to the image of God in every being that has been created by God. In every man that's been created by God, that, that is his image. We can't mock it. We can't have a, have a, a, a ridiculous or, or joking attitude about it. We can't have callous indifference towards it. When in, in so doing, we insult God. We can't possibly sin against man without insulting the, the creator, the, the one who created us. We can't insult or we can't, we, we can't sin against man without sinning against God. And that truth has ruled from the point that Noah stood on dry ground. That truth has been known since that day. It might point out, just, just so that you all know, and pick, pick, out the, pick out the nuance here, that we talk about having been one race, really one race in Adam. But we can't say that without also recognizing we're one race in Noah. 
with, with, with Noah. We, we come from the same flesh and the same blood. We are men and women, offspring of his. We are one people. Genesis 10 gives us that picture that it's called the table of nations. It's the line of people extending from Noah, which continues to live in rebellion towards God. They continue to do it. But it isn't just any rebellion. There's a specific rebellion that gets called out in Genesis chapter 11. We'll look at it in verse 11, 1 through 9. It's the Tower of Babel. The people that extended from Noah. So here they are. Now the whole earth, it says in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. They were able to communicate. They didn't have to sit around and define words before they used them because they knew what each other was saying. The whole earth, one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves. Who were they building for? Ourselves. Let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Who are they, whose name are they making? Themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves lest lest we be dispersed across the face, over the face of the whole earth. What did God tell Noah when he stepped out on dry ground? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Out of a desire for their own fame, out of a desire for their own, uh, their own name, out of a desire for their own glory, they decided we don't want to spread across the earth. We want to stay in this place. See, at the heart of racism is our rebellion against God. It's our denial of God's image that resides in others. And also the heart at the heart of racism is a desire to make a name for ourselves rather than honor the one we have been given. This is an identity issue. We would prefer to identify as we want to identify rather than God's people. And so we still see it today. We identify in our ethnicity, in our culture, what we've come to call our race. And we've made our identity in Christ as something secondary. And so we have white churches, and we have black churches, and we have Korean churches, and we have Chinese churches, when in God's eyes there's only one church. Tell me racism isn't real. It resides even in our hearts. It's there because there's sin there. It's there because our flesh desires, uh, it denies the image of God in others. And it's there because we seek our own name. But in this moment, God's like, oh, I'm not going to let that happen. So it says, he says in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city. This is pretty cool because these guys built a tower. Like they built a tower. They were getting to the heavens, make a name for themselves, and it's still so small that the Lord has to come down, right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. First, let me just point out, this is beautiful. This is powerful because it demonstrates the intelligence and the ability and the creativity that God has established in the, in the jewel of his creation, man and woman. 
This is, this is amazing. If we were all together, if we were unified, if we could just be one people like this, there's nothing that would be impossible for us. He came down. He sees it. He says it. He says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And suddenly, ethnicity, culture that's different, colors are born. And this act of judgment by God. Why? Because of our sin, our rebellion against him. Because of our desire for our own fame because of no longer recognizing the image of God in each other. But in this, don't, don't, we, we, we shouldn't sit here just, just depressed and, oh man, there's judgment. And this judgment is mercy. If he hadn't done this, when would we ever seek him? If we hadn't seen a need for him, why wouldn't we still be in Shinar building towers to our own name? We would have never left. But by his judgment, he brings mercy. It's extremely important for us today, extremely important that we see this in our current day, in our current circumstances. Because today, as we look out into the world, we hear the cry of people who are hurting. We hear and, 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 and see the, the pain that's being dealt on a, a particular class, a particular color of people. In this judgment that's come, in this division that's driven, there is mercy because even these people who may or may not be Christians, even these people are driven to a place who need, who see the need for God who see the need for a Savior, who are made aware of a desperate problem of the division that's driven into us by sin. You see, this is beautiful, even though it's difficult. I don't want to celebrate the division. I don't want to raise it up and say, let's clap our hands at it. We should be mourning it. We should be grieved by it. But we should see the fruit that can come from it. Because in seeing the problem, we can bring the solution. We finally have an answer. And the sin that has divided us and the, and the, the sin that has ripped us apart from God and, and caused us to be enemies against one another. The sin that has so drastically driven us to a place where we deny the image of God in each other and, and brought us to a place where we so live so selfishly for our own name. We have to realize this. We have to catch this. That in the midst of it, it's not just out there. It's in here. Apart from Christ, within each of us resides a racist. I'm not talking about the kind of racism that, that causes a person to join the KKK and then go beat and, and, and enact physical violence purposefully. I'm talking about the kind of racism that intrinsically thinks more highly of yourself based on your color or devalues another person because of their color, just like that woman in Nicaragua. Just like me stepping off a bus to a group of Hispanic people that thought I was, I thought I was their great white hope. 
What arrogance. What idolatry. What sin. In the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this conviction, I told you I'm pleading. I've already prayed it even as we began that we wouldn't have to stay there. Because of the gospel, there's a different opportunity for you and for me. Because of the gospel, we can move beyond these things. We have the solution. We don't have to live in awareness that results in frustration. Because everything we try fails. Because of the gospel, there is hope for us. There is ability for us. And that, and that gospel, that promise that God had been making is seen. As much as this story of racism and division is seen all across the Old Testament, so is the promise he had been making. We see it in the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden, in the midst of the curse. He promised one to come to crush the head of the serpent. In, in the promise of God to Abraham, who was going to be the father of many people that, that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach, this, this man, God says that through your seed I will bless all nations. Then in the promise of the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah, that would be a blessing to all peoples. And in the prophecy given by the prophets that a king would come in the line of David, sit upon his throne and reign forever, and he would bring his remnant from among all peoples. Over and over and over, we see this promise. This promise to the division. This promise to the racism, the, 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 the hatred towards one another. And what we get a glimpse of in the Old Testament is given clarity in the New. You see, when we see that the, the, the source of our racism is our sin against God, then we're able to realize that the solution to racism is the gospel, there is no other answer. No one else can achieve reconciliation. No one has this power or ability from God. Only those who have believed and trusted in the gospel. This is the thing that God sent his son for. He cared so much about it that he suffered. That Jesus in and of himself took on a whole new nature. Might I point out that he is the very first cross-culturally concerned person. The most radically cross-culturally concerned person. He took on a whole new nature that he might come and live among us. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And he rose victoriously that we might be reunited, that we might be reconciled, that we might be unified to God. And thereby being unified to God, we finally have an opportunity to be reconciled and unified to one another. You see, this is the truth. There is no reconciliation with men if we have not been reconciled first to God. They cannot happen. We are too intrinsically woven together. And we see this work continue as people, uh, people follow Christ through the work of his apostles in Acts chapter 2. Peter and, and the 120, they're, they're gathered, the Spirit pours out on them, and they begin to prophesy the goodness and glory of God. And a crowd gathers, and they're listening, and they're hearing, and they're like, wait a minute, these people are uh, they're speaking, uh, wait, I hear them in my own language. God overcomes by the power of the gospel, God overcomes the judgment that was brought at the Tower of Babel. Then later in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 29, Paul writes that we are neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are one in Christ. It doesn't deny that there's differences. It doesn't mean that there's not different roles or different parts that we play within the body. 
but we are a, a, a unity. We are one people. We are from the line of Abraham. In fact, he says that we are made heirs in the line of Abraham. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as Peter has expressed the gospel, he comes to this place and he's speaking to a scattered church that's, that's all over Asia Minor, that's made up of all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of races, if you will. Writing to this scattered and suffering church, Peter says that before the gospel, once we were not a people, we were not a unity, we were not a unit, we were not a people, but now we are God's people. You see, we're united not because we're special, not because we've got it figured out, not because we finally found the system or the formula. We are united and able to stand reconciled together because we in Christ have been reconciled to God. Finally, this culminates at Jesus' return, Revelation 7, chapter 7, verse 9. Gathered around the throne are peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Without gospel reconciliation, first to God, through Jesus, there is no ability for gospel reconciliation among mankind. And Paul clearly paints this picture in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just, let me just spend a little bit of time there. We won't stay there long. We won't, we won't dwell on it too long. But I, you, you've got to see this. We've got to know this. We've got to live this. And so he writes in Ephesians to the, to the church in Ephesus. He expresses the gospel in chapter 1. And he comes to this place in chapter 2 where it's very easy to read. And in fact has been read in evangelical churches as if it's this individual thing. Like I was dead but now I'm in life, alive. By, the, by grace I have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves so that no one can boast. And we take that and we apply it to ourselves. And I was dead but because I believe I'm alive. And as the work of Christ has saved me on him. I'm, and we're amazed by that and we're appreciative of that. But the evangelical church has stopped at that. And they, they don't continue reading, they don't continue seeing that we didn't just get saved so that we could be a God's person. He goes on to show us in the verses 11 through 22 that we have been saved so that we can be reconciled unto God and his people. And pick it up in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing the ordinances that he created in himself. One new man. Every time we walk in this place of division and every time we allow color or, or socioeconomic position to determine how we treat one another, we might as well be putting a block on the wall that Jesus tore down. We're rebuilding the wall. The wall that Christ died and rose that we might see abolished. He goes on and he lets us see that we have, we have acceptance. We have access. We have peace with God. And because we do, we're able to have peace with one another. As recipients... Listen, as recipients of God's reconciling gospel, we are responsible then to live reconciled lives with God and God's people. I'll close with this thought. Paul didn't quit writing at the expression of the gospel. He made commands in light of the expression of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Anything else, anything else is to spit on the cross that saved you. 
He didn't say that. That's my words, just in case you're wondering. He says, you know, walk in a manner worthy of which you have been called with all humility, thinking of myself not as better than I should, but recognizing my condition before Christ and my equality with brothers and sisters in Christ and in this created order with all humility and gentleness with patience, long-suffering, that's the word, long-suffering, with patience, being willing to endure this, bearing with one another in love. You get why He didn't write this to a church that had it figured out. He wrote these words because we needed to hear them, because there was tensions, because we live in a broken, sinful world, but because of the gospel, there's no longer room for us to live divided, but only in reconciled diversity that's been united in Christ. See, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called with one hope or or to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, as the church, if we don't do this, there is no one else who can. So we get up and we walk out of this place in repentance. Repentance of silence. Repentance of not striving to step in. Repentance of, 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 of a, simply ignoring it. And we go and we believe so fully in the gospel that we preach it so that our world can hear the hope of reconciliation. And we live it so that whether there's a black person or a white person in Christ or a Chinese person or an Indian person, in Christ we receive one another and we walk together in unity. For as much as its power is able for me to do, I will strive to live, live at peace with everyone. So we go, knowing that because of the gospel, there's no room in the church for division. Only reconciled diversity that's united through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, meet us here. Convict us of necess- as necessary that we might confess. that in that confession that we might know your forgiveness. For wherever we are and whatever role we walk and whatever place we stand, there's enough sin and shame to point fingers at. But God, would you remind us that in Christ we stand no longer condemned, but freed empowered and enabled to walk in unity with you, at peace with you, and because of that, at peace with one another. I ask these things in Jesus' precious, holy, powerful name. Amen.